Hello, and welcome to Staying In with me, Jan Powell. In this podcast, I'm going to be exploring the different and sometimes thought-provoking ways people are coping during this COVID-19 lockdown. Of the 5.5 billion people in the world, around one-third are in some sort of confinement, and that means staying at home because of the pandemic. I'm talking to a few of them in very different localities, from Paris to Penzance, Istanbul to India, to find out what they're experiencing, the local rules, the frustrations, the highs and lows, and what, if anything, we all have in common. This week, I'm speaking to Yvonne Ng in Hong Kong. Yvonne is a 27-year-old PhD particle physics student who spent the last 11 years dividing her time between the US and Europe. She was in Geneva, working at CERN, the European Organization for Nuclear Research, when the centre was abruptly closed following cases of COVID-19 in March, forcing Yvonne to return to Hong Kong with just a day's notice. Yvonne is part of the SARS generation, children who lived through the devastating SARS epidemic back in 2003. And I was fascinated to find out how it's affected Hong Kong's response to COVID-19 today. Hi, Yvonne. Good to talk to you. How are you doing? Hi, Jan. Um, I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing yourself? Yeah, fine. Uh, but can we just start by you telling me uh, where you are in Hong Kong and what you could see out of your windows if you were able to look out of them now? What, where, what's the situation where you are now? Ah, uh, interestingly, uh, currently I'm actually on an outlying island that's like uh, maybe 20 minutes of like a ferry ride away from the main Hong Kong island right now. I'm house sitting for an uncle that recently moved away. So outside Sounds my, nice. Yeah, outside my window, I can actually see a bit of the ocean and it's just mostly houses out there now because it's, it's in the evening. So. so tell me the story about how you got back to Hong Kong, um, how you, 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 left your, you left your place in Geneva. Uh, t- tell me how that happened. So basically, I was uh, spending some time in the U.S. Um, last year, and um, I moved back to Geneva in January. Um, things were already getting kind of bad in Europe. So in um, Italy, there were lots of cases, and they basically locked down countries um, two days ago. And um, I received like an email from the director general of CERN saying that like um, they're shutting down CERN um, next week. And I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Because um, I was actually still in uh, temporary housing back then. It was um, sometime in March. So um, I emailed my advisor and my advisor was like, um, maybe we should, uh, you know, think about it and you'll see, see how things go in a, in a day or so. And basically within a day, Trump um, issued like um, a ban on like all European flights. And basically within a day, I couldn't fly back to the U.S. So Oof. and things were getting really bad in Europe. And my advisor was like, OK, um, I think you should go back to Hong Kong. That's like a place that, you know, you have family, you have uh, people to stay with. And nobody knows like how long it's just getting dragged out. So, so it was a very, very sudden decision. Yeah, it was a very sudden decision. Actually, um, it was like literally the first time in my life where I bought a ticket and left within 24 hours of purchasing that ticket. And I do consider that I sort of fly a lot. That was even a new thing for me. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. So you found yourself just whisked back 
to mm-hmm. I suppose what what is your home? You have family there. So what what was it like at the beginning of this whole drama in Hong Kong itself? I mean, presumably it didn't seem too serious at the time. Yeah. Um, so we actually heard about this um, this coronavirus thing back in January. I actually spent um, Christmas in Hong Kong, so I was actually still here when we, when we had like our first cases. I think it was mid January. So then people already like start knowing about this virus in the beginning. And also we sort of had like another experience with um, another similar virus. And I think it was called SARS back then in 2003. I was in fifth grade then. And so people were pretty alert and they sort of like already knew that something bad is going to happen fast. So, um, so we had our first wave in January. I remember leaving to the airport and um, my best friend from high school was also flying on the same day, and she was flying into Changsha, which is like an hour, a couple of hours away from Wuhan, and she was already freaking out, <laughs> and she was making <laughs> me wear a mask and all these things. So um, yeah, back back in January, we already started to know about it, but then um, things didn't get too bad until like um, rather recently. So. Yeah, but still, still staying with those days right at the beginning there, um, Hong Kong really made a name for itself as being exemplary in taking control of this virus because it's a very a small, crowded island, um, densely populated, uh, very close to Wuhan, uh, with a big border going to uh, open to to lots of different countries, and yet back in April you still only had cases sort of under 100 and maybe three or four deaths. So what was it at the beginning that enabled Hong Kong to keep on top of it so well, do you think? Honestly, in the beginning, the government weren't really doing very much. If anything, you know, wearing a mask was associated with uh, protest activities and it was prohibited. And But then people basically start wearing masks really quickly. And, um, but I, and I also think that... Um, there weren't too many cases in the beginning and they were all able, like people were able to track them down. And that's so really very good, very good. Uh, yeah. yeah. Good tracking and tracing, which really yeah. got on top of it. Yeah. yeah it was like a very um, fast response. Cause yeah. Cause I think, I think it has, has a lot to do with like the previous experience that we already had. So the SARS, the, the, right. the experience of the SARS epidemic meant that everybody was really right. We're on it. We're prepared to wear masks. We're going to keep away from each other. We know where this can lead. Um, so it was really kind of people themselves taking the job on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also think that um, people that grew up with SARS, which is people from my generation, sort of got like a bit PTSD from that experience. I mean, I don't want to use this term lightly, but yeah, honestly, like... Um, what I remember was that I was in fifth grade and um, they made us all wear masks to go to uh, when we go to school. And um, they made us like wash hands like multiple times during the day. And literally there was like a, this um, strange atmosphere, like, uh, you know, you kiss your parents goodbye in the morning and you don't know if they're coming back again. Like, I mean, when you were a child that kind of got drilled into you and that was like a fear, you know? So so I think like that probably also contributed to like the collective fast response because we sort of had that experience once and it was like a collective trauma. I wonder if that will affect children today. I mean, wonder whether children growing up today will have a similar Yeah, absolutely. Feeling. I think I think they will. 
And this is like a much bigger scale than what I experienced as a child. So. SARS was very, very fast acting though, wasn't it? I mean, people, it was very virulent. It was, it was, it affected people very rapidly. Uh, perhaps a little different from, from Corona, which is, takes longer and, and uh, although more people get it, not so many people die from it. Yeah, I honestly, I don't remember enough or, you know, knowing enough about this subject to say, but I think the mortality rate is actually less, if I remember correctly, but um, it's a lot more contagious. So like the number of people that catch the virus is actually much, much higher than SARS. So it just ends up affecting more people, I think. Yeah, and and SARS died out, didn't it? It mutated yeah. into something that was not so lethal, and it just disappeared. Yep, I think it just went away in the summer. Because yeah. I think most fires do, right? Like like coming cold or something. But yeah, but not, I don't think this, this is happening. <laughs> not this one. Yeah, I don't this think is, this, is, this is happening. This does not seem to be weather. It doesn't seem to be weather affected at all, does it? No, it doesn't seem so. So going back to the beginning then, um, were you able to go to work or were you immediately locked down, immediately at home? So I was actually really worried that, uh, you know, I might have caught the virus somewhere because um, CERN already had like a couple of cases and, you know, the numbers were rising very quickly in Geneva. So um, I didn't have any symptoms, but I was definitely worried that I might have caught the virus somewhere and it was a carrier. So just to be safe, I actually booked a, a hotel room and I was uh, staying somewhere for two weeks just to uh, self-isolate and make sure that I don't bring the virus home to my family. So I was actually staying in a hotel for two weeks. Could you then go to work or were you again working from home right from the beginning? Uh, I was working from the hotel room. <laughs> it was a, it was definitely a very strange experience. Was it the isolation or was it suddenly landing uh, this complete culture change from Geneva to Hong Kong, to a hotel room in Hong Kong? So I think like the traveling doesn't really bother me because like I've, I've been traveling a lot over the last couple of years. But what really was strange was that like as an academic, I feel like most things I have a plan for, meaning if I go to a conference, I usually plan, you know, multiple months in advance and um, things like that. So it, was, so it was strange being trapped in a hotel room in a sense that like I have, I felt like I have no control of like what's going to happen soon. So it didn't seem like there was a plan. So that was like definitely something that was very strange and foreign to me. And what's even stranger is that like there isn't anybody that you can ask. Like there's no boss. There's no, there's nobody knows what's going to (laughs) happen. So there's like absolutely nothing to plan for. So that was like a very strange two weeks. Yeah. And then, and then what happened after that? Did you, did things feel a bit more normal? Yeah, uh, yeah, like things, uh, things were more normal because, like, I, uh, I mean, I moved back into uh, my parents' guest room, and that was, yeah, and so I was with family again, and you know, things got busy, start seeing friends again because there weren't like really a lockdown there, lockdown in Hong Kong then, so mm. I started seeing my friends and stuff, so things mm. felt more normal, but like that two weeks was was like, absolutely bizarre. <laughs> On a personal level, I think 
you know, for me here in France, the early days of the lockdown on my own were really hard. And it it was, I, I totally get that feeling of control being taken away from you. Um, you know, not able to go out when you want to, not, not able to do the normal things. Here we weren't able to cross the border into countries around us. It felt very strange. Um, and I'm aeons older than you are, Yvonne, and I, <laughs> I wonder whether you think, I, I have this feeling that it was probably harder for young people because it's at a time of your life when you, you need to be going out and you need to be seeing friends and you're used to that social contact. Um, do you think it was? Do you think there is a difference in the way older people and younger people cope with it all, or, or am I wrong there? Um, I'm not sure, but... Um... But honestly, like, even throughout that two weeks, I was pretty so pretty connected with friends because, like, we'll organize, like, Zoom activities. Because it was a, around the time where, like, things were starting to close in Europe. And I was basically on Geneva time for that full two weeks. So we'll organize, like, game nights or something. And, you know, so I feel like I was still getting, you know, social activities and stuff. But it definitely gave me a lot of time to be alone which was a bit different than what I'm used to and yeah and I mean that was really difficult in the beginning but um but then um you know I found books to read and things like that and I actually quite enjoyed it in the end like um that I got you know some time to myself and like reorganize some thoughts and things like that so that was like a abnormal quiet period yeah, forced introspection, forced yeah. time to actually get to grips with a few things that maybe you don't normally have a chance to deal with. <laughs> yeah, but um, I'm definitely glad that it was only for two weeks. I might yeah. not feel the same. I was like, <laughs> for months. <laughs> I know. People looking back now, well, from here, my perspective, looking back and saying, oh, it wasn't so bad. There was this and there was that. And I learned how to make this and I learned had time to do that. I think it's just nonsense. I think it was... Not something that anybody would want to repeat or go through if they didn't absolutely have to. Uh, but anyway, yeah. that's just my feeling about it. Right. So fast fast forward, because when we spoke 10 days ago, Hong Kong was doing really well in these so-called coronavirus stakes. But yeah, 10 days uh, on and the situation has changed drastically. What, what is it like now and, and what's happened there in the last, uh, since basically the end of July? So... Um... Basically, uh, a bunch of people caught the virus. And um, so basically, uh, the Hong Kong uh, media called this like a third wave, which like, honestly, I feel like this is really the first wave because the first two waves actually then reach like the point of a full social outbreak, which is super important in a city with 7 million people and not a whole lot of um, shared spades. So... Mm. Um, so, that, yeah, so that's right. interesting. So, yes. So, so just to understand that you're making the difference between a few cases that were controlled and brought into the island and then this, which is community spread now. Yeah. So community spreading is uh, actually really scary because um, the place is so densely populated. Um, so over the last two weeks or so, that started happening and um, there, there has been like a lot of cases every day. And so things are getting a bit scary now for people. And um, a lot of my friends start working from home now. And um, they are also shutting down a lot of facilities. And you're, you're seeing a lot of cases every day. And that is not a good feeling. 
because you you almost must feel you've you've been through this, and now here we are, back to the start, only worse. Yeah, and I think people are also getting fatigued because some、um, people start. Basically,、uh, the first case happened here in January, so it's almost like、um, like a full half year ago, and we're still not done with it. So, no, but that's that's yeah. I think we all feel that.、Um, but yes, particularly bad. You're getting、uh, over a hundred new cases a day at the moment, isn't that right? Yep. It's it's not just community spread, is it? I mean, it was brought in from outside. Is that from from travelers again? Why why do you think there's suddenly been this resurgence? So there's been lots of speculations to why this happened, and a lot of people think that think think that it actually came from、um, these exemptions that they gave to、um, sailors that are on、um, export and import ships, and so people are just getting really frustrated with our government currently because、um, it seems like the community is doing so well, but then.、Um, These、uh, loopholes in policy is just bringing us all down. So that has been frustrating. <laughs> Perhaps one of the most interesting things about Hong Kong's experience is that it it hasn't just had to deal with the COVID crisis, the ongoing COVID crisis. There's another crisis unfolding, which is the political one, the the pro democracy. Uh, movement that's that's happening、uh, sort of in parallel,、um, which has seen thousands of people, I guess, out on the streets.、Um, has there been an, a link between the two, or do you think that、uh, those demonstrations have not, in fact, contributed in any way to the to the spread of the disease?、Uh, so personally, I don't believe that demonstration will actually、uh, contribute to. The spreading of the disease any more than you know regular activities because I mean if you just go to Causeway Bay or Hong Kong which is like the major shopping districts in Hong Kong on like a Saturday or Sunday you would just see like the same number of people and you know same number of crowd they might not be walking the same direction as that would be in a con- like a demonstration but it would still be like the same density of people though so. So to me, and they weren't shutting down those,、uh, you know, commercial activities for for a very long time. So to me, that just seems impossible. Like that,、uh, the demonstration was would be like a major contributing factor to this,、um, yeah, to the spreading of COVID nineteen. However, there's like a very interesting interplay between、um, the politics and、um, and COVID nineteen.、Um, Recently, is that like、um, the government is trying to use、um, use like public health as like a reason to、um, not allow protests? And I don't know if you heard、uh, recently they just decide to、um, move the whole legislative council election cycle by a year,、um, yeah. citing that、um, public health and the spread of virus as a reason, which is、uh, very odd to us because they're still allowing. Um, school children to go to school、um, in September, but、um, apparently voting is not allowed.、Huh. And yeah, and there's like no mail-in ballot system at all, <laughs> or some kind of inter- internet polling. There's no such thing. From one perspective, it is、uh, yeah exploiting the public health situation to、um, yeah push a particular political agenda. Yeah, 
So that's been frustrating, to say the least. As a result of this new wave, or first wave, as you're talking about it, the real arrival of the virus, what what are the restrictions? What are the have those big shopping malls now been closed down? What is the what is the situation socially in terms of what you can and can't do? Oh, so um, they're actually so open. Um, so meaning you can still go shopping, but they usually close at like a an earlier hour now. So. And uh, so the restaurant regulations has been changed. So it means that you can only sit on. So I think you can only be at a table by yourself now. Or was it two people? I can't remember exactly. But um, I think it's <laughs> yeah. It's you're either... not going out much then. You're not. You're, yeah. you're not out there very much. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm on an outlying island enjoying my summer. So I'm usually on a beach alone. So so I'm okay. Uh, so it's like takeout only past like a certain hour and it's like 6 p.m. or something. So it has been like a nuisance to a lot of people because like um, the most people here, they um, people actually do takeouts a lot and people um, usually eat, eat lunch in these like local canteens uh, rather than, you know, eating at home or bringing their lunches. So it has been like a major nuisance to like people that are working. A major nuisance. You can cope with that. That's, that's, yeah, there are worse things. People have to actually learn to yeah. cook again, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I, I mean, things are definitely like not super bad over here compared yeah. to other places. But so, yeah, we're learning and adapting to, yeah, new ways of life. Yeah. We're talking about adapting. Um, do you think looking forward when this is over, which it will be eventually, do you think there'll be major changes, fundamental changes in the way people work or in the way the way things function, um, whether it's cooking your own food or whether it's more seriously in the ways that you work? Because you've mentioned that you travel a lot, for example. Um, as a physicist, presumably, you have to have exchanges of ideas, face-to-face contact, discussion. Is that possible with this lockdown and restrictions on travel? Do you think that will continue to affect the way you work in the future? Yeah, so I think that may this may actually change a lot of things fundamentally because um, most of the conferences has been moved online. Um, so, and I don't know if that's going to be like a thing that sticks. And I also noticed that a lot of people are working from home now, so um, that actually might become, like, a permanent thing. And, you know, that might just make, like, outsourcing jobs more easy. I, I, I'm i actually not super sure. But, yeah, I think, like, the way that we'll, we'll be traveling um, will, will definitely change permanently. As a young physicist at this time in your life, how do you feel about that? So honestly, flying excites me. So um, I love flying. I love tra- traveling to different places. And that's definitely one of the major things that I love about my job. So the prospect of like not going to be traveling as much in the future actually kind of makes me sad. Hmm. And and apart from the, from the joy of it, just the sheer experience of going to new places, um, as a physicist, h- how important is it to have that person-to-person exchange? Um, it's actually uh, rather important because, um, I mean, there are a lot of uh, conversations and, you know, a lot of ideas that, like, just kind of spring up in these, like, coffee chats and, like, lunch conversations that it just wouldn't have happened otherwise. So um, a lot of times when you go to travel to these workshops and, like, or conferences or go, you know, 
be based in like a location for a short while, you're looking for that social contact. So it's definitely strange that like if this is not going to happen in a long time. And honestly, as like a young person, I find these like connection and contact to be especially important because you get to know people and then you and these are these usually turn turns out to be become important connections for you later. So yeah, it's part of I, your network building, isn't it? It's yeah. part of actually creating that network which which takes you forward in, uh, into your future career. Um Yeah. And so like I think it's um it's definitely a, a little tough for me as like a maybe a fifth year student, but um it's definitely going to be a lot tougher even for like a person that's just like starting to get into the field. It's quite scary. Um it seems to me that this has been a huge experiment in, yeah. in social um, structure, social living, the way that we connect that's been forced on people in, you know, a matter of days and weeks. Yeah. But I mean, there are also some good things that comes out of this, right? I mean, I've been cooking a lot more. I've been eating like home food a lot more. I mean, I've been eating my mom's cooking a lot more. And I mean, so I think there are good things like have you have you been able to reconnect with your family? I mean, having to be at home has that yeah. has that been a plus? Yeah, um, definitely. So, like, um, I actually haven't lived at home for like over eleven years now. I was seventeen when I left. So, um, so this has been like a nice opportunity for me to um, be able to spend more time with my family. I mean, it definitely comes with its own struggles, but. Okay, I, I mean, I mostly treasure and I'm grateful for a time that I get to spend with my family and getting to know Hong Kong a little more, not as like a 17-year-old, but like, you know, more as like an adult. And that has been like a good opportunity for me. And you're there at a crucial moment in, in, in the history of the territory, aren't you? I yeah. Mean, is that important to you? Yeah, I mean, um, I guess like I've lived in multiple places for like um, the last decade. I feel like Hong Kong is my home. It's like my hometown. Honestly, like after being away for so long, I just don't really know it very much anymore. And um, it doesn't matter whether like it's like good things or bad things that we're going through right now. I'm glad that I'm here. So, I mean, being able to like witness and just sort of be with the place is very important to me. So that's been something special that's come out of this experience for you. For sure. Yeah. What you've described so far has been quite, uh, yeah, thought-provoking, serious qualities of this of this whole COVID pandemic. Have there been any more light-hearted uh, elements that you can think of? <laughs> yeah. So um, I haven't really lived with my mom for so long, and um, I'm noticing that I'm gaining a lot of weight. <laughs> <laughs> from living with my mom for so long because like she makes really good food oh that's nice <laughs> yeah um but um but yeah like so I think that's like a nice thing that came out of this this, this experience yeah and I also get to um you know be by the beach so that's yeah, also that sounds nice. good that's yeah. good and are the beaches are people wearing masks on the beaches or or yeah. is it uh-huh. yeah so it's like uh it's enforced by law so like um all public places you're you're supposed to wear a mask yeah so all public places outside public you're wearing places, masks places. and people do that because i noticed here although it's a it's a rule in parts of switzerland and um 
not outside everywhere in France, but in some countries, but people are not obeying it. They're really taking it very lightly. Yeah, honestly, I think it has to do with like a whole generation of people that, you know, in 2003, were being like forced and made to wear a mask and sort of had like a collective trauma surrounding the whole experience. And these people are just currently probably, you know, ranging from their 20s to maybe early 40s. And those are like the people that are enforcing, right? And it's like a big part of like society. So yeah, like um, people are really obeying it. To transfer some of that over here, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what have you missed most during this lockdown roller coaster? And what are you looking forward to doing most when it's all over, which one day it will be? Hopefully. <laughs> um, so like the thing that I really miss the most is um, just getting coffee with my friends at workplace you know, be it at CERN or, you know, in California. I just really miss, like, being in a work environment, just getting coffee with, like, your colleagues. And that's, like, something that, like, I, I just can't have anymore. I mean, we do, like, yeah. Zoom chats, but it's not it's not the same. Like, you don't see them face-to-face anymore. So yeah. one day when I, it's I, all over, yeah. You get tired of always seeing people face on, don't you? You want yeah. to see the side, the side of their head, the, the three-quarter view. <laughs> right. <laughs> Look, Yvonne, um, I hope when this is all over and you're back in CERN, back in Geneva, we can meet face to face and have a proper coffee together. Um, thank you so much for talking to us today. Sure. And um, thank you very much for help having me today. Bye for now and enjoy that beach. Thank you. That was Staying In with me, Jan Powell. Thank you for listening if you've made it this far. It's been a family affair. A big thank you goes to Hugo Powell for his music, audio production and patience. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do share and subscribe. The next one will be along very soon. 